Benjamins, baby. Uh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Quiet. I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. Central banks, for all of their power and influence, have at any given time only a fragmented view or lens into how payments move within the economy. You see, in virtually every country, the technology suite available to a central bank can offer only a very limited kaleidoscope of information that can be at times very difficult to integrate. Payments, for example, in the United States, which run through the automated clearinghouse or Fed wire systems, are not integrated with one another, so the Fed doesn't necessarily get to view them as operating on the same platform. So against this backdrop, the mighty economists of the Bank for International Settlements have come up with a solution, a unified ledger that combines varying data points and inputs to provide a holistic view of transactions taking place in the economy. Now, this is a big, ambitious proposal. So to break it all down and what the BIS is really aiming at, I'm happy to welcome back to the show Yoon Song Shin, one of the world's great economists, to explain an idea that's got everybody talking and central banks dreaming big. Yoon, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks, Chris. Um, thanks for inviting me back. All right, so so this is a, a a pretty complex and intriguing sort of vision for something that is itself already a bit of a complex uh, payment systems. Maybe you could provide us with a little bit more detail about sort of what this ledger is in practical terms and what kinds of problems it's seeking to solve for how payments are are handled today. Yeah, um, you know, I guess the point we can start is just to note that you know payments, the payment system doesn't exist in a vacuum. Uh, you know, payments are, um, are there to support economic transactions of various kinds. And, and so um, when we think about uh, the role of the payment system in the economy, in society, I think we have to think about the broader range of activities that actually go along uh, with payments themselves. And so, you know, I would say that the vision we're putting forward this uh, you know, this time with this with this report is much broader than just the payment system. It's um, it's asking um, what else? How can the economic activities be better knitted together? Uh, and what is the role of the payment system there? And uh, to achieve that, what are some of the preconditions? Uh, you know, we're going to need. And so, uh, and we can get into the details on exactly what this is. But the idea would be first of all. You need a settlement asset somewhere on the system that uh, gives you the unit of account. And last year, uh, we talked a lot about the unit of account, as you, um, as you recall, Chris, but also settlement finality, uh, something that actually says, yes, this is now done. Um, and you can uh, turn around and uh, you know, turn to your next uh, transaction. But then to uh, really enrich the space of economic activity, what you need is to, um, if you like, in the economics jargon, expand the contracting space, which is to say, what are the things that we know uh, make sense, but don't 
always take place because of either information problems or incentive problems um, that mean that you know what actually you know happens in practice is really a small part of uh, you know what um, those kind of economic arrangements uh, you know that uh, that makes sense so this is you know very very abstract um, but you know we can we can explore uh, some of uh, you know some of these details that's really interesting because really you're combining uh, or merging the idea of payments into the idea of economic activity itself, which seems to me to be more than uh, just the idea of, of a transfer of values. Is, is that what you're getting at? You know, before we get there, I think it's worth just reflecting on the history um, of how we got to where, you know, where we have. And, you know, throughout history, it's very, very clear that uh, innovations and monetary arrangements, I mean, they've very much coincided with big leaps in economic activity itself. So in that sense, you know, money doesn't exist in a vacuum. And, you know, I think the big um, innovation was the advent of ledger money. So money in the form of ledger entries um, that are maintained by trusted intermediaries. Uh, and that really, you know, enabled a huge, you know, spurt of growth in commerce and uh, trade. And uh, when we think back um, to what was done then, so this was, you know, six, seven hundred years ago, it's scarcely imaginable that, you, you know, we could have had, uh, you know, huge growth in trade and commerce without that innovation. Because what that did was it um, bridged the geographical distance involved in trade as well as the, the time gap between incurring costs and actually you know, receiving payments. And all kinds of financial instruments were built on top of you know, ledger money. And then you know, once we had, you know, those ledgers were paper ledgers for hundreds of years, but you know, then we had electronic, uh, you know, the, the, you know, in the digital age and in the age of electronic record keeping. I mean, that was just boosted tremendously. But you know, these are still piecemeal databases, if you like, that are maintained by, by intermediaries. You need to somehow assemble those. So even if uh, you can update the ledgers at the speed of light, what we don't have is the ability to knit together these different elements into one seamless operation. And this is why, you know, for example, we have the perennial separation between messaging systems, uh, reconciliation, you know, the clearing, and the final settlement, um, and this is why you know when you uh, when you have securities trading, it takes you know a couple of days for that trade to settle. So that's a sort of you know small intro, but you know we can definitely get into some of the details. That was really helpful, and 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 also just the observation that large amounts of or, or periods of economic activity uh, tend to be sort of catalysts in some way of of new payments processes, right, and which then enable. Uh, more economic act activity. Absolutely, and it's and it's a two-way process. So, you know, as um, as users um, find, uh, you know, uh, you know, as technology progresses in other areas, uh, you know, there's a demand from the users, and so the monetary system adapts to that. But then, you know, as you have new ways of transacting coming on stream, that unleashes all the latent demand that was there. And so you have this two-way interaction, um, and that's, uh, you know, that's very, very clear throughout the history of money. So I suppose then, you know, when you think about the paper and the context and the backdrop of this paper, um, tokenization maybe represents the next opportunity, 
perhaps uh, for that next leap, or is perhaps the expression of, again, all of this economic activity, which is enabling certain kinds of advances that are now being applied to, you know, uh, the payment space. In, in, in any event, tokenization represents this a major part, really, of, of, of your vision here in, in, in this paper and what the BIS is working on. So maybe could you explain a bit more about specifically what, what do you mean by, by tokenization? It is, after all, a bit of a term of art and people use different kinds of sort of ideas uh, for it. And, and why is this idea in your mind such, a, such an important path forward in processing value within the economy? Yeah, that's a, um, so that's a very important question. Uh, tokenization is the watchword for, for this report. And in a way, um, the way that we pose it uh, in the report is to say that tokenization is, if you like, the next logical step in the evolution of this uh, you know, journey that, that uh, we have been on. It's really the next step in this journey. It's you know, the, the first step being the dematerialization of money into ledger entries. And then the digitalization of money through uh, electronic record keeping, tokenization, we think, is the next big, um, the next step in that. And what do we mean by tokenization? It's not just a digital representation of money or assets. It's digital representation on a programmable uh, in on a programmable platform. And specifically, what that means is, it combines both the uh, the information on what the asset is uh, and the ownership of the asset that you find in a traditional database together with uh, the rules and logic that define the transfer you know, of that asset. So what that means is, uh, so what that opens up is the possibility of using these logical statements, you know, if, then, or else, that type of logical statement that, uh, you know, for example, we're familiar from crypto, um, to build in the contingent performance of actions. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a kind of commitment to do certain things provided that some conditions are in place and the ability to bundle them up uh, or composability, uh, which is a term that's very familiar from crypto. You know, there's a composability element here as well. And so what you can do is essentially build um, a or assemble together um, a set of contingent performances of actions in a way that will you know, get you a very desirable outcome, which otherwise may not happen. So a very concrete example of this would be where you have a reciprocal transaction. So you know, um, one person would like to sell an asset, the other person would like to buy the asset and pay, and they uh, have agreed a price. But currently, uh, that kind of transaction is done, you know, the two parts of that reciprocal transactions, they're done separately. And there's always a settlement risk in that, you know, one person can deliver the asset but doesn't get paid or vice versa. A very famous example of this is uh, the failure of, uh, you know, Bankhaus uh, Hestad in 1974. You know, this, the, probably the sort of, you know, the, the best example of settlement risk where, you know, one party had delivered one currency and was expecting the other currency back. But somehow, because of operational risk, you know, that doesn't happen. That's a very, very sort of stark case. But, uh, and that's a very simple example of this. But um, you know, imagine uh, more complex economic situations where you know, if we all um, had full information, we all had common knowledge of what the underlying circumstances are, we could write a contract 
uh, in full view of the circumstances that will make everyone better off. But in practice, uh, that doesn't happen because information you know, isn't common knowledge. Uh, there are various incentive frictions along the way. And those reverberate you know, through that group so that uh, that kind of contract doesn't happen. A very good example that we discuss at length is supply chain financing. It's a notoriously difficult case. And tokenization is a way, if you have the right types of assets on the platform, if you have the right types of information that can um, you know, inform those contingent performance of actions, then you can potentially unlock a huge amount of economic value. Um, and thereby expand, um, in the jargon, you can expand the universe of possible contracts. So, you know, one of the really interesting points there, you know, about tokenization and embedded extensively as in terms of the possible assets to tokenize are deposits, right? And, and certainly we've heard more about this uh, over the last year um, and sort of sticking with the tokenization theme. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, you know, tokenizing deposits and, and, and really how that could be one of the mechanisms for pushing payments uh, really, I guess, to, to the next level. C could you say a little bit more about how to conceptualize what a tokenized deposit is and what are the economic gains that can be had by doing so? Because I think a lot of the folks in our audience will be pretty familiar with what a cryptocurrency is and what a stable coin may be. But, but what is the difference, say, between a stable coin and a tokenized deposit and why you know the emphasis on the tokenized deposit solution for really thinking through um, the possibilities of, of of better of better payments. I think the the way to start that, Chris, would be to just say uh, first of all we need some kind of settlement asset in the background, and this is where the CBDCs come in. But of course, for the primary means of payment uh, on the platform, uh, they will be privately provide money. Um, so, you know, um, we're not going to be using, um, uh, you know, we don't need to use a CBDC for everyday transactions. We could use a privately provided form of money. And I just say there are two main types of, there, you know, there are two main candidates for what a privately provide money for, um, for you know, day-to-day -day transactions would be. One is a stable coin, an asset-backed stable coin, which we're all familiar with. Another one would be the tokenized version of deposits, which is um, the basically the, the counterpart on the platform of deposits that we use uh, on a daily basis. Now, what are the similarities between those two? Well, they're both liabilities of an intermediary um, that are redeemable in the sovereign unit of account. So both, so, so with a deposit, you go to your bank, you can get uh, dollars back. Same thing with a stablecoin. You can, you can redeem uh, dollars. The difference is how they're transferred. So a stablecoin is essentially a digital bearer instrument. So you know, when I transfer my stablecoin to someone else, the issuer really has no say in that matter. That's really my choice. And uh, now the holder, the new, the, you know, the new holder of the, of, of the stablecoin is the rightful owner. Now, what, what is the consequence of that? It means that uh, when you open your phone, you, you look at your money wallet, what, you've, you know, what you have is a, a list of all of your money holdings, but they're all different monies. Uh, there is a name of the issuer next to how much uh, you know, money you have. 
So it's as if uh, we're in the era of uh, free banking, where you're holding you know, uh, paper bills, and it has the name of the bank there. Now, what are, what are some of the issues with that? One of the things that comes up is that uh, um, you may have slight deviations in the price. And typically, I, mean, I would go so far as to say, almost certainly, there will be very, very small differences in price. Even if they're you know, uh, very, very minute, it's very unusual to have it trading exactly at par. And this could be for a multiple uh, in number of reasons. It could be, for example, there may be differences in perceived liquidity. There may be uh, differences in perceived uh, you know, backing. Or it, it could even be something even more remote. Like, you know, I have no doubt in the backing uh, of the stablecoin. But I'm just concerned that someone else down the line might be concerned. So it's a higher order doubt about whether others harbor doubts. All those, you know, all those reasons will give you, um, you know, will mean that there is an exchange rate. And you know, when money has an exchange rate, um, you know, there's a question of whether that is really money at all. I mean, it's definitely a financial asset of some kind, uh, but is it really money? You know, that reminds me very much of when the Eurozone uh, crisis was coming along and everybody was asking, is a euro deposited in a German bank the same thing as a euro deposited in a Greek bank? Uh, and I think that this question as to the moneyness of the euro was really uh, kind of lurking in the backdrop. Uh, but I, I guess I interrupted you here. Uh, what, what else is there when thinking about tokenized deposits? There's also an issue, and this is you know um, uh, very standard in the in the banking literature about you know KYC. So when I transfer my stablecoin to someone, how do I you know how can the issuer be sure that the recipient is actually someone who has undergone KYC? So I mean that's a kind of you know that's more of a compliance issue. Now the way that a tokenized deposit would work is to fully um, harness CBDCs as a settlement asset. And it, in a way, it mimics exactly the way that the current banking system works. So when I pay you, what happens is not that you acquire a claim on my bank. You just see your bank balance go up by the same amount. And, and how does that happen? Well, when my bank sends uh, to your bank, there is a CBDC transfer. And that goes through straight uh, at par. But my bank now reduces my balance, and your bank increases your balance. So what's just, you know, so what's just happened? Um, I've lost, you know, I, I have seen a, re a reduction of my money balances. You have just seen an increase in your money balances. But it's an increased claim on your bank, not against my bank. And in the meanwhile, there's, uh, there is a transfer. And that transfer is taking place using a CBDC as the settlement asset. And so the payment goes through exactly at par because the payment is uh, you know, made using uh, a CBDC. And on the, AM, uh, and on the uh, you know, AML KYC uh, K, um, you know, point, because I'm only dealing with my bank and you're only dealing with your bank, your bank can be fully satisfied that you're a customer that's already you know, undergone uh, the KYC checks. And so um, we make a big deal of the fact that uh, money has to have this property of respecting the singleness of money. I mean, 
one of the great triumphs of the current monetary system is that you don't give a second thought to um, the fact that the dollar in your phone, you know, that you know, the the dollar in your bank account is the same dollar as one dollar, um, you know, in cash in your hand, and we're so used to that. Uh, I mean, that's one of the features that just comes straight through. Yeah. Can I can I just ask just to make sure that that that, that I understand because this is this is pretty interesting. So is, is part of your argument or part of the 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 insight here is saying okay, look, tokenized deposits are are uh, you know represent claims on a bank, whereas a stablecoin is hey, this claims on an issuer. You know, obviously a CBDC being a claim on the sovereign. Uh, you know, there are limitations perhaps as to you know what we can do with uh, you know central bank money perhaps. Uh, but if we're going to go with other kinds of solutions, banks are regulated in such a way that they have or they generate more faith. And so you're, what you're trying to say is that gets you closer to to more to money because there's 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 more trust. To what degree then is the regulatory perimeter here really necessary for that to kind of work? And and I guess, you know, Sitting in in Washington, we've had a couple of, of of bank failures, right? Where there were like questions about how well banks were were supervised, and and and, and internationally in in Switzerland, uh, you know, you've obviously had had some uh, similar questions with, with 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 Credit Suisse. I mean, it seems to me that you know the regulatory perimeter is is, is pretty important. Maybe even deposit. Insurance, you know, being uh, equally Im- Im- important, perhaps. So, so maybe you could just talk a little bit just about that, just so that there's clarity as to saying, you know, on, on what basis the tokenized deposit here is really the 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 appropriate pressure point for this tokenization thesis to really push payments in the way that you envision. Yeah, uh, I think regulation and the supervisory perimeter certainly is uh, very important. Uh, I mean, going back to your the first part of your question, you asked, uh, you know, what is it about regulated banks that uh, you know is more conducive to singleness? Is it just regulation? I think the answer is no. It's uh, it's much more about how the value transfer takes place. The value transfer takes place through the transfer of the CBDC as a settlement asset. So, you know, my bank transfers the CBDC to your bank in order that your bank credits your account. Yeah. So, you know, your relationship is with your bank only, but the value transfer that actually makes that possible is actually using a CBDC. So the whole system is underpinned by CBDCs, even though the customer-facing, you know, balances are you know liabilities you know of our respective banks. Now um, you make a very important point about the importance of regulation. What about you know when banks are stressed? What about when they fail? I think the key point here. So the singleness of money is not a statement about uh, the value of the liabilities as a store of value. Uh, so you know we know, for example, that negotiable CDs issued by different banks will have different interest rates. There's no reason why those, you know, those interest rates are all the same. And different banks will have different credit ratings, for example. Uh, and banks, when they issue bank bonds that are traded in the bond market, they're going to be trading at different spreads. So the singleness of money is not a statement about 
the same risk or the same absence of risk. Of course, you know, there, there will be credit risk. The singleness of money is about payment. So when I make a payment to you, that payment goes through exactly at par. And uh, when we look at our balances, uh, the money is there recorded at par value. It's not like a stable coin where, you know, minute as they may be, there will be exchange rates between different stable coins. And the claim is whenever there is an exchange rate, that is not money. And so it's not just a rhetorical point here. The idea is the whole point of money is to be completely immune from any doubt because after all, it's a coordination device. I mean, it is, it is the coordination device uh, par excellence. I mean, it, this is what actually knits the whole society together. And if we have exchange rates, what that will do is, um, you know, as these things change hands from one to the other, to the third and so on, those small differences could really amplify, magnify. And what you will have is really a kind of, you know, exchange of assets, certainly, but it's not monetary exchange. And I think it's a very, very important point that money should be exactly at par. Doubling down then on the CBDC concept, and let's maybe shift gears a little bit to, to this question of, of, of adoption, right? You know, CBDCs are interestingly becoming a little bit more disputed, at least here in, in the United States um, and in some countries. So, so how might the concept of a sort of underlying ledger or unifying ledger be used sort of in those countries with, with two minds about programmable CBDC? I think this is, um, uh, of course, a very good question because, um, you know, depending on a jurisdiction, they're considering wholesale CBDCs or retail CBDCs, wholesale being CBDCs that are available to uh, banks and other intermediaries, retail CBDCs, um, those being available to the general user. As you can see, um, the way that we're thinking about CBDCs in this kind of tokenized platform, this tokenization platform, is primarily in wholesale form. So it's the settlement asset that underpins most of the transactions. The customers, you know, the the daily, uh, the individual users will be uh, will be using private forms of money, uh, in particular tokenized deposits, for daily transactions. Now, the counterpart to a wholesale CBDC right now would be central bank reserves that are held by commercial banks. So these are, you know, um, claims that commercial banks hold. It's the money that commercial banks have deposited at the central bank. And that's all electronic already. And uh, what we're talking about here is really a very, very small step from the digital variants of central bank reserves we already hold, um, that, we, that we already have, to putting, the, uh, putting those uh, reserves on a, uh, on a platform uh, where you can have the tokenization. Now, whether you have a retail CBDC as well as those settlement um, uh, oriented uh, wholesale CBDCs there, I think that's a separate question. You can go either way and still preserve the main sort of function of, uh, of the wholesale CBDC as the settlement asset. What we say is, in fact, uh, on balance, it will be good also to have a retail version there um, that's also going to uh, 
you know, be available to uh, ordinary users because what that will do is to further strengthen the singleness of money. So just like um, you have the option of going to your bank and asking for cash or just go to your ATM machine and taking out cash, that's a kind of tangible link with the issuer of the sovereign unit of account. And it's something that we take for granted, actually. Um, we're so used to it, we don't think twice about it. And um, the retail CBDC discussion is really coming to a head in some jurisdictions in particular where cash use is really dwindling. There are some countries where cash is now below you know, 3% of all transactions. Um, and there, I think, you know, there is a definite prospect that cash will just not be used anymore uh, you know, in, in, a, in a few years' time. Then the question is, do we need something which will uh, provide that umbilical cord, if you like, between the user and the sovereign issue of money? You know, I didn't really think of ATMs as establishing direct relations with the sovereign, but uh, that is, I guess, what they do by dispensing cash. Uh, but I can imagine all kinds of reasons why the retail option you're talking about uh, could be subject to some pushback, especially banks. I think people have different views about this, and I think it's a you know perfectly defensible position either way. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, some of some people that I you know respect most they argue, well, you know, why do we need retail CBDC? Why do we need cash? Because you know the money in your bank is ultimately backed by central bank reserves. And uh, you know we can be fine with that. I think that's a perfectly defensible argument. My, um, you know, my own view of this is that a retail CBDC. Uh, I, you know, so my view of this is that we perhaps underestimate how used to cash we have become, and the fact that we can just easily go to this, and um, you know we can go to an ATM machine and, and just get the cash out. Now. What if we go to the next generation, you know, a cash hasn't been around for, let's say, 20, 30 years. Uh, will the next generation feel the same? Um, possibly, possibly. But I think it's, um, you know, I sort of worry that uh, once we leave, you know, once we lose that tangible link, that tangible marker of trust between the user and the sovereign issuer, we're actually losing something important here. And, um, and having a retail CBDC, even if it's not used that much, serves a very, very important um, you know, symbolic role, serves a very important um, you know, governance role um, on the origins of money and that uh, tangible mark of trust between the sovereign and the user. So, so let's do a couple of sort of lightning round questions on, on this question of, of, of governance, right? So as I understand the paper, you have this, this unified uh, ledger, and obviously, please correct me on anything that I make it wrong here, but you have this, this unified ledger, and on this ledger, this blockchain-based ledger, um, it could be a decentralized ledger, I'm, I'm going to assume not on an open blockchain, but maybe it's some kind of permission blockchain, uh, being run by a central bank, you can have all these interesting assets on this kind of unified ledger that enables then uh, faster uh, payments and a more unified idea of money because you can you have both settlement and the movement of value that are collapsed into one another. But 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 what does the governance of that kind of super ledger 
look like? I mean, um, like what are, what are the kinds of protections that would need to be in place as to who's able to input information and data storage, privacy and, and, and the like? I mean, like who, who gets to see this data? Maybe can, can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I mean, just to just to you know tackle your first question, um, you know, on the uh, on the technology, we don't uh, spend that much time on you know um, on whether it's centralized or decentralized. I think it's perfectly reasonable, you know, to to think of a decentralized system as well. But it doesn't have to be. And in fact, I think there are there are I think lots of advantages to having something which is, you know, if you have the proper cryptographic mechanism for the secure, uh, you know, sharing of data, uh, you can have a centralized, uh, you know, way of updating. So the technology is something that, uh, uh, you know, we can leave to one side and it doesn't have to be decentralized, but it could be. I think much more important is what are the components? It's the governance issue that, you know, that you raised. And that's really the key. So um, let's just, uh, you know, think about this step by step. So for the settlement layer, you know, we need um, a version of tokenized uh, central bank money there uh, for the unit of account and the settlement finality. So we need um, a, a wholesale CBDC as a core component. Um, we're arguing that tokenized deposits are a superior form of uh, the main payment means uh, for both real and financial transactions. So that's going to be there. Now, depending on the use case, uh, you want something else there. So if, if the use case is for securities trading and settlement, we want um, the, you know, all the um, ecosystem uh, associated with security trading and settlement and custody, et cetera, on that platform. So we need all the, you know, um, all the players who would um, be involved in securities trading, so like a centralized securities depository, the custodians, clearinghouse, etc. So you know that would be a very kind of you know self-contained set of um, tokens on the ledger. And by the way, you know um, uh, we're not thinking of a super ledger, you know one ledger to rule them all. Definitely not. What we're saying is, uh, I mean, the term unified ledger is referring to the fact that we have several tokens of different kinds all on the same programmable platform so that a smart contract can make reference to money, uh, securities, and settlement using CBDCs. So the, you know, so the program has to refer to them, um, and so it, it has to be on the same platform. Um, but definitely, and we say it you know, very, very um, you know, clearly, we envisage many, many different ledgers, you know, many, many different unified ledgers depending on the use case. Now the governance, well clearly, um, this is not something that the central bank can do all by itself, because um, you know if you have other applications, if you have securities, already you've got the centralized securities depository, you've got the clearinghouse, you've got the broker dealers, uh, the custodians, etc., etc., etc. We need to bring everyone on board, and what we're going to need is a rule book that says, well, first of all. Here is how we manage um, our, you know, our, our data. So in particular, what uh, we'll need is some very clear rules on um, the data partitions, uh, where each um, partition, each you know, element of the partition 
has um, the the data that's um, you know uh, that pertains to that player on the platform. So, for example, the data partition that uh, uh, that refers to the central bank will be you know all the things that the central bank has exclusive access over. So, whoever is the authorized uh, participant for that domain, that part of the domain, you know they will have the final say. And similarly with the commercial bank uh, partition. And then the securities partition and all the different, uh, you know, um, players in that ecosystem. And because it's it's a partitioned environment, that's going to be much easier to maintain, um, you know, the the data confidentiality. And no one else will have the ability to, you know, uh, override you as far as your partition is concerned. However, because the smart contract will have to refer to the different elements. What we're going to need is a way to encrypt data when we put it into the smart contract. And so the computation is going to be done using encrypted data so that no one knows the true value of the underlying data that's coming from the other domain. There are various ways of doing that. Um, uh, some of the cryptographic techniques, you know, like uh, homomorphic encryption, that's still in its early stages, but it's you know one particular way that you might do it uh, if you want to. But then you know this is a field that's advancing very very fast, and most importantly, we need a procedure for how the rule book can be amended, because you know uh, the world changes, and we have to make sure that the infrastructure is fit for purpose. <laughs> so you know um, in in crypto, how would you do that? Well, in crypto. When you need to change the rule book, you have a fork. That's the only way of doing that. But you know, do we want to do that for something as important as this? No. There will be a uh, you know we have the rule book, and then there will be a set of you know meta rules, if you like, a constitution that says when you need to change the rule book, here's how you would do it. And so I think that's the way that we envisage this. This is super interesting, particularly the the, the idea of. How do you make rule changes on a payments platform without even, you know, how, how do you program change into a platform is, is a pretty interesting and, and complex question in and of itself. I, I do want to wrap up with, with one last question on, on inclusion, um, since that is obviously a big focus of the BIS. I mean, how advanced or excuse me, how exactly does a unified ledger, this kind of evolution in our payment system, like how does that concretely impact inclusion? Does it at all? And if so, in, in what way? I think it will have a huge impact on inclusion and in ways that um, you know, goes well beyond the kind of things that we talk about. I mean, when we, when we typically talk about inclusion, we are talking about financial inclusion for um, people who, don't, uh, who, you know, who are unbanked or underbanked. But I think we can think about inclusion in a much broader sense. Uh, I, and I think a very good way of doing this is to go back to the example of the supply chain uh, that we started off this conversation with. The supply chain is, if you like, um, you know, the lifeblood of the economy. Uh, you know, from a manufacturing sector point of view, it's absolutely you know, crucial. It's something that also crosses borders. And it's a notoriously difficult problem to solve um, to do well. And the reasons are very well known. Um, you know, if you if you have a long supply chain, it takes a long time for you know goods to reach the final customer. The suppliers are typically small firms, 
they're not well known. Sometimes they're in another country. And you know, the typical way that we would think about solving this problem is to get a bank and that the bank could uh, you know, lend for working capital purposes. But that lending is you know, really fraught with lots and lots of problems because you know, the bank might be worried about the credit worthiness of the, of the small firms. You know, who, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, the financial statements may not be so clear, might be in another country. And we know that this is a field that's rife with fraud. Um, how do we know that this invoice is genuine? How do we know that uh, you know, this supplier hasn't pledged the same invoice to lots of different banks? And for that reason, either working capital doesn't get provided or it's provided at really prohibitively you know, high rates. Now, if you, if you can put um, those kind of claims on a unified ledger, so what you would need is, uh, of course, uh, you know, the banks to provide the loans. You could have commercial paper type of uh, you know, assets running around here. You could have uh, you know, other receivables if you can tokenize. Uh, and in fact, there is a, a project called Dynamo that uh, we've just you know uh, we've just concluded in Hong Kong. What you can do here is really to unlock that uh, economic potential, and it's both the incentive effects of you know um, making the disbursements of the loans, making the disbursements of the money conditional on various stages of where the goods um, you know um, in transit are and in what condition. You know, you could even condition it on the GPS input from where the cargo is, for example. So you can program in a reduction of the interest rate if you sort of meet certain, you know, milestones. And that way, you can have the working capital provided. Um, the supplier gets the money to produce, pay the workers, uh, you know, before the final invoice is paid. And the final buyer can say, okay, I'm happy with this because I know that there are these safeguards and these payments will only be triggered when uh, there are certain milestones that I'm comfortable with. Now, if you think about what is, so I think the, the best way of thinking about this, so the question is, what are the things that are not happening right now because of these economic frictions that could be unlocked? And I think um, you know, the, the potential here is huge. And I think we're really on, a cu you know, on the cusp of a very major development. If we can just get this done, and you know this is not science fiction, Chris. You know there are several central banks, uh, including at the New York Fed, with uh, you know with their tokenization experiment right now, and at the Central Bank of Brazil. This is really something that uh, is already very much in train. Well, I am very looking uh, forward to seeing that train leave the station, and also uh, you know to see the directions uh, that that the train will move. I too have heard about some really interesting things that are going on, particularly in Brazil, but I think that will be a discussion for another day. You, thanks so much for joining us. You know we really enjoy having you, and you've given us so much uh, food for thought. Thank you, Chris. It's always a pleasure. I think the idea of a unified ledger is supremely impressive, but it won't be easy. Central banks will have to overcome plenty of skepticism about central bank digital currencies and privacy, plus they'll have to convince themselves that the governance mechanism they create will itself prove to be robust enough to withstand foreseen and unforeseen problems. And when you're talking about payments and depending on banks as the anchor, those kinds of issues can catalyze concerns for systemic risk.
But whatever you think about this idea, I do want to take a moment to applaud the BIS. It's not easy for governments and especially international organizations to innovate. And the BIS has demonstrated time and again an interest in doing so boldly and pushing its constituent members to aim big and to keep up with the times. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.